Well, good morning. morning. Grateful to be here. Thank you, Jason, for the invitation. Uh, For those of you who have been here Friday and last night, uh, it's been a joy to be with you, and it's a joy to be here this morning. Uh, Some of you in the room know me from almost 20 years ago when I started coming here for church. Uh, We started coming in 2006, I think, and we're here until 2011, and, uh, you know, for those of you who were here during that time, when when I saw the song list in the bulletin, I thought we might pull out the Red Book this morning, um, but we didn't, but we sang some good songs, so I was grateful for that. Uh, It's been been a little overwhelming to be here, to be honest. I mean, I I haven't been back in 12 years, and uh, some of you kept my kids, my first two kids, when they were babies. Uh, Ricky was just telling me a story that I won't repeat uh, from the pulpit about keeping Grace in the nursery, uh, and uh, a, a story that I hadn't heard, so, uh, you know, that happened 15 years ago, so that was fun. Uh, I, when I rolled up to the church parking lot, I thought of a few things. One of them was uh, Grace hunting Easter eggs out on the lawn on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter. The other one was getting pulled over by two cop cars uh, on a Sunday morning before church when I was on staff here. So uh, there are some there are some good good memories, some interesting memories, uh, and I'm glad to be here. Uh, the, Alicia wanted me to tell everyone that she says hello, and of course, uh, hopefully someday we can bring the whole family. Uh, so if you have your Bible, please turn in it to First Samuel 17. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 17 today. Uh, if you have been here Friday and Saturday or one of those two days, you know that we've been talking about how to read your Bible in a way that you see Jesus in every story. And as Jason and I were talking about what text would be good to preach this morning as an example of how to, how to do that, um, there are a number of texts that I often mention that are probably... Not the best ones to bring up uh, in front of people who may not have read them before, or at least especially in front of kids. So we settled on 1 Samuel 17. Uh, that's a text that's relatively familiar to many people. It's the story of David and Goliath. So for the kids in the room, you may have heard that in Sunday school this morning. I don't know, but you probably will hear it soon in Sunday school if you didn't hear it today. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that we hear growing up in church. It's a story that we hear even in our culture uh, people use this story as an example of, of things they're facing. Some of you may have seen, you know, like, for instance, the movie Facing Our Giants or Facing the Giants about a football team. Uh, there's a popular author named Malcolm Gladwell who has a book called Facing Our Giants about leadership. And there are a whole host of examples that we could give about David and Goliath in your, in your own life and that people use this story to talk about difficult battles. Uh, and so this morning we want to read this story again. It's, it's a story that many of you are probably familiar with, but we want to look specifically at how this story points us to Jesus. So start with me in verse 1. We're not going to read the whole chapter. I am going to skip down and I'll let you know when I'm going to do that. But we're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read uh, a significant portion of this chapter together. 1 Samuel 17 verse 1, the Philistines gathered their forces for war at Succah and Judah, and camped between Succah and Azekah and Ephesimim. Saul and the men of Israel gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, 
There they lined up in battle formation to face the Philistines. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet nine inches tall and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins, and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam, and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield-bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, Why do you come out to line up in battle formation? He asked them, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite from Bethlehem of Judah named Jesse. Jesse had eight sons and during Saul's reign was already an old man. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war And their names were Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the next, and Shammah, the third. Jason, if you have a fourth boy, there's some options for you for for names. And David was the youngest. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David kept going back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock in Bethlehem. Every morning and evening for 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand. One day Jesse had told his son David, take this half bushel of roasted grain along with these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Also take these ten portions of cheese to the field commander. Check on the well-being of your brothers and bring a confirmation from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And now I'm going to ask you to skip down to verse 32. Uh, David essentially goes throughout the camp and asks what's going on uh, a number of different times. People get mad at him and tell him to go away. And finally, in verse 32, he says, David said to Saul, don't let anyone be discouraged by him, that is Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. But Saul replied, you can't go fight this Philistine. You're just a youth. And he's been a warrior since he was young. David answered Saul, your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on his armor. David strapped his sword over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his own gods. 
Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. David overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. David ran and stood over him. This part's not in your children's Bibles. He grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they fled. The men of Israel and Judah rallied, shouting their battle cry, and chased the Philistines to the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. Philistine bodies were strewn all along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, that's a story that, again, most of you are probably familiar with, but we want to walk through the details here. And I didn't, you know, I, I, it would be great if we had time to read verses uh, 19 through 31 as well, because there's a lot to say about that, but I'll have to mention that as we walk along this passage. Uh, I have until like one o'clock, right, Jason? It's harvest day, so we're good. Yeah. Uh, so. I want, I want you to see six things here, and we'll move through these relatively quickly. So uh, there are six aspects to this battle that help us understand what exactly is going on. This is a great story. It's a fun story to read. It's a fun story to think about. It's a fun story that's always in children's Bibles. It's a fun story, like I've said, that's used all over our culture to talk about different kinds of battles. But Ultimately, this story, like every other story, is a story that points us to Jesus. And so today I want you to see six things about this story that help us understand how it is about, ultimately, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first of all, the context of this battle, the context of the battle. Uh, The immediate context, as we talk about this passage, is that Israel is still waiting on someone, anyone, to lead them to possess the promised land. Uh, If you know the story of Israel, God calls them out of Egypt and he sends them into the promised land. They They go under the leadership of Joshua in the book of Joshua. And Joshua is in some sense successful, but at the end of the book, it says, and the Philistines were still in the land a bunch of times at the end of the book. So the people of Israel are not actually successful in going into the land and possessing it like the Lord told them to do in the book of Deuteronomy. Instead, there are these pockets of God's enemies that still exist in the land. In the book of Judges, we see that it's even worse than that. It's even worse than the book of Joshua describes, because in the book of Judges, what we see is that Israel, not just these pockets of Philistines, but Israel everywhere throughout the land has not obeyed God's commands. They have not followed what God has said to them, which is to, again, drive out the people that live in the land as judgment on them, God's own judgment, not their judgment, not because of ethnicity, but because they're 
sinners in the hands of an angry God, essentially. God says, I'm going to drive you out by Israel, and Israel doesn't obey. In the book of Judges, not, not only does Israel not obey, but the leaders that he gives to Israel are progressively worse and worse and worse. By the time we get to 1 Samuel, it's to the point where we, we, we meet Eli and his two sons at the beginning of that book, and I won't mention all the details, but Eli, his two sons, Eli, the leader of Israel, the, the priest of Israel, has two sons, and they're terrible. They do everything possible to disobey the Lord. And it really looks like Israel is going to fail ultimately and finally, and like God is going to destroy them. That, that's the situation we find ourselves in the beginning of 1 Samuel. Nevertheless, what we also see is that God raises up a prophet, Samuel, and Samuel first anoints Saul as king, and if you haven't read the story of Saul recently, he's really terrible, uh, and Saul is, is Israel's first king, so God raises up a king through the prophet Samuel. That king, Saul, fails. He fails to defeat God's enemies. He fails to drive out the people of the land. He fails to obey God's word. He's just like the bad leaders and judges, and also even back as far as Joshua. And so we get to this story, and we're still waiting for someone. We're still waiting for someone to finally obey God's word and drive out God's enemies. We're still waiting on a leader who will come and provide victory over the enemies of God's people. We're still waiting on a king. Remember that in Judges, the end of the book, what's, what is the, rep- the, the repeated phrase at the end of Judges? There was no king in Israel. We're still waiting on a king. That's the immediate context of this passage. But if we widen our lens out just a little bit to the rest of the Old Testament, the, the, the context of the canon for this is that we're not just waiting for a king. We're waiting for a new Adam. God made Adam and Eve to be his image bearers who ruled over his place, who, were fruitful and, who would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers of him, who would cultivate and keep his land and who would obey his word. Adam and Eve failed at that task. They sinned. They listened to the voice of the serpent instead of the voice of God. God kicks them out. And from Genesis 3 all the way here to 1 Samuel 17, we're not just waiting on a king, we're waiting on a new Adam who's going to crush the head of the serpent and restore what Adam lost. We're waiting on the seed of woman. Someone from the line of Abraham who will come and reverse the curse of Adam and restore what Adam lost. And how is he going to do that? Genesis 3.15 tells us that it is through crushing the serpent's head. And I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that detail. We're waiting for someone to come and crush the serpent's head. And we're waiting on a king to drive out the people of the land. So here's the deal. This passage, in terms of the context, this passage is occurring in the middle of Yahweh's God's promise to restore what Adam lost and also his promise to Abraham to bring them into the land. And it's also occurring in the context of Israel's repeated failure. So we've got, we're waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises. We're tired of seeing Israel fail. That's what's happening. Okay, the second thing I want you to see about 
this text is the circumstances of the battle. So the context of the battle, and then secondly, the circumstances of the battle. This battle is significant in terms of God's covenant with Israel. Notice what Goliath says at the beginning of this battle, of of this story. In verse 8 and following, he stands up and he starts talking to the Israelites who have gathered to battle against him. And he says in verse 9, if your representative wins in a fight against me and kills me, we, the Philistines, will be your Israel's servants. But if I, Goliath, win against him and kill him, then you, Israel, will be our, the Philistine servants. If Israel loses this battle, that's a reversal of the Exodus. Right? God, in the Exodus, brought Israel out of slavery from Egypt, put them in the Promised Land. If the Philistines win here, the Israelites will go back into slavery. It's a reversal of the Exodus. This is significant for God's covenant with Israel. It also means that Israel would have completely failed to follow Deuteronomy's instructions. And that's why it would reverse the Exodus. God told Israel in Exodus, don't even be afraid. Don't even worry about the people of the land. I'm going to drive them out before you. Don't worry about it. Just go in. You'll be fine. He tells them that in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And then, the, then what happens? Instead of obeying that, they send 12 spies. And 10 of those spies come back and they're what? Afraid. So God says, all right, you're going to wander around the wilderness for a while. And then he talks to the second generation of Deuteronomy and says again, go into the land and don't be afraid. And what's the first thing that Israel does in Joshua? They send two men in to spy on Jericho because they're afraid. And over and over and over and over and over and over again, we see in Numbers and in Joshua and in Judges and now in 1 Samuel, the people of God are afraid to obey God's instructions. And you see that even in 1 Samuel 17 here. What does verse 11 say? When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, what happened? They lost their courage and were terrified. Israel has failed repeatedly to follow God's instructions. And so here there's a threat, a final threat, that the reversal of the Exodus is going to happen. There's also some significance to the geography of this place. So we don't often talk about geography when we talk about the Bible. Um, If you want to know about where this is in Israel, ask Rick. He can tell you. I probably couldn't point it out. Uh, But this, this valley that... Uh, they're gathered at is a significant valley militarily. It's like if if the Philistines win this pass, then they will have access to all of Israel. The significance of this battle is not just covenantal, it's also military significance. That if, if the Philistines win, they have pretty much full access to the rest of the nation of Israel and they can take it over. So I just want you to hear how important this battle is. It's not just any battle. And we'll come back to this in a minute. This is not just any battle. This is like D-Day. You win this one, you win, you lose it, you lose. There's no in-between. If Israel loses this battle, they're done for. 
Third thing I want you to see is the characters that are in the battle. And this is hopefully going to build and, and become clear what exactly is happening as we walk through this. The characters of the battle. Goliath. Look up at verse 4. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. So this dude is huge. He's a giant. And what were the spies in Israel afraid of? They were afraid of the giants in the land, right? Here's a giant, this Goliath of Gath. And this giant also is clothed. Notice how it's described. He's clothed with a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. Pounds. So here's a giant who's heavily armored, and his, his armor is described as having scales, or, be, or looking like scales. When you hear the word scales, what do you think about? A snake! I don't like snakes. <clears throat> I don't like spiders more than I don't like snakes, but that's another story. All right, so... Goliath here, this champion of the enemy, is pictured like a snake or like a dragon. That's the image that's supposed to come to your mind as you read about Goliath. And just, I, I just want to make sure that we pause and take a breath and think about that for a minute. Here is the enemy of Israel stand, standing in front of the people of God, waiting to destroy them. And their champion is a giant serpent. And he's ready to enslave the people of God and bring God's promises to naught in this battle. Israel, on the other hand, is led by a man named Saul. Now, if you remember in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, and it may have been a while since you read 1 Samuel, but I'll just go back to uh, 1 Samuel uh, eight and nine for a minute. Israel's asking for a king. Uh, and in chapter nine, uh, verse one, after Israel has asked for a king, right? God, God is supposed to be Israel's king, but Israel demands a king like the nations to go out and fight for them. So chapter nine, verse one, there was a prominent man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Apia, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. And listen to what it says. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. So this guy Saul, that's supposed to be the king of Israel, he's supposed to be the one leading them into battle. He's a head taller than everyone else. He's impressive. He's a fighter. He's a warrior. At least he looks like he is. And then when the time comes... For him to fight for Israel, what does he do? In verse 11 again, when Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Saul, who is supposed to be the leader of Israel, and who is supposed to have courage, just like Israel is supposed to have courage. What is, some of you have this on your walls in your house. What is Joshua 1.9? Be strong and courageous. Saul loses all his courage and is afraid, right? In Joshua 1.9, that's a statement about going into the land and conquering it. Joshua is the leader. It's supposed to be the picture of courage. Be the picture of resisting fear. 
And it's the same thing for Saul, and yet him and all of Israel lose their courage and are terrified. Now, the interesting thing about those words is that that's what God says the nations will respond with when Israel goes into the land. He says, these nations are going to lose their courage and be terrified in front of you. What's happening is that Israel has lost all of its status, its obedience. It, is, it looks like the nations. It looks like the nations are supposed to look. Okay, so the context of the battle is this covenantally significant fight. The circumstances are that we have, uh, or the context is, is the whole Bible and also Judges and Joshua. The circumstances is covenantally significant. The characters are Goliath and Saul, and then also, though, David. David comes out. He is full of faith. He's a son of Judah, and he has the fear of the Lord. This is unlike anyone else in Israel. Everyone else is afraid. Everyone else is terrified. David comes out, and he is full of faith. He's also from the tribe of Judah, which, as we know from Genesis, is the line through which that seed of woman is going to come to crush the serpent's head. So again, just think about it for a minute. The champion for the Philistines is a big snake. And the champion for the Israelites is a son of Judah, the tribe through which the seed of woman is going to come. Your expectation for this battle ought to be like up here at this point. Like we know it's now or nothing. That's essentially what's happening. Fourth thing I want you to see is the quality of the battle. With respect to Israel and Saul, Saul would rather let a teenager take his place than fight. And in fact, he tries to put his armor on David. This is a grown man. Goliath has 125 pounds of armor on him. He's huge. Saul isn't quite that big, but you would imagine, you know, probably like, what, 75 pounds of armor maybe for a guy that's upwards of six feet tall? And he tries to take that off and put it on a teenager. Now, if the teenager is like Bruce Brantley, then maybe it would fit. But for David, uh, it doesn't fit, and he, he can't use it. But the point is, that what, what is Saul doing with that? What, what is he doing by trying to put this armor on David? What is he saying to David? He's saying, David, you need my own tools to protect you and fight this battle. The battle that I'm not willing to fight, I'll still give you what I need to fight. He's, he's relying on his own power, which is why he's afraid in the first place, by the way. He's relying on his own power for this battle, and he tries to put that power onto David, even though he doesn't trust it himself. Goliath, on the other hand, is full of pride, and he appears to be unbeatable. Finally, you have David, who is full of faith. And what that means in this story is that because he's full of faith in Yahweh, because he's full of faith in the Lord, he refuses to fight with the world's weapons. He refuses to fight this battle with armor, with spear, with sword, and instead fights in reliance upon Yahweh. Notice what David says uh, down in verse 45. Right? Saul has tried to give him his armor and his weapons. Goliath has mocked him for those things. And David responds and says to the Philistine, 
You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. The point of David refusing Saul's weapons is not just, you know, it's not just like David knew how to fight with a a sling and a stone because he's a shepherd. That's true, he did. He was familiar with those things. It's not just that he, you know, quote-unquote, didn't have a choice because Saul's armor was too big. The reason why David refuses Saul's armor and he fights with these silly kinds of weapons, seemingly silly, is because his faith is not in himself. It's entirely in the Lord who's going to fight the battle for him. And so when he walks out to battle, he's fighting with what we would call foolish means. He uses foolish weapons. This doesn't make any sense. Here's a nine and three quarters foot tall giant who's armored from head to toe. It says he's got a bronze helmet, and then it talks about the scales of his armor. But if you were to look at armor from that day, it would have gone from his neck all the way down below his knees. So this dude is armored to the hilt. And he also has this big javelin that's like a weaver's beam. He's got a sword. David walks out essentially naked. Now, he's not actually unclothed. But in comparison to that, he has nothing. He's not armored. He's not, he's not going to protect himself with any kind of metal. He doesn't have a shield. All he's got is a sling and some stones, and essentially all he's got is his faith in God, and that's it. That's what he walks out into this battle with. As he walks out into battle, this looks like a battle that he cannot win. And he makes it worse by choosing the weapons that he chooses. But as he walks out, what does he do? Think about it for a minute. Here's this giant snake, and where does David hit him, first of all? Square in the forehead. Right? Now, maybe Goliath had a big one like me and it was an easy target. I don't know. But hits him square in the forehead. This isn't coincidence, right? The author of 1 Samuel, is, he wants you to think about Genesis 3.15. He wants you to think about, here's a giant snake whose head just got crushed. And David then goes and chops off his head, which doesn't make it into a lot of our big picture storybook Bibles. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a reason why David not only hits him in the head, but then cuts off his head. He's done. Right? You think a stone hits you in the head, you fall to the ground, maybe he gets, he's just unconscious, could get back up, maybe he's not really dead. But no, David goes and makes sure he's dead, chops off his head. This is a, this is a picture of what we're waiting on in Genesis 3.15. So as we think about this story, as you think about what's happening in 1 Samuel, 
I want you to think about this. And I've already spelled some of this out, but I want you to put it all together for yourself. This is a covenantally significant battle. It means that either God fulfills His promises to His people or they fail. It is a covenantally significant battle fought between not just the armies of the Lord, but two representatives. The representative of God's enemies is a giant snake, a dragon, and the other one is a lion killer from the tribe of Judah who's anointed by God and represents God's people. The battle that they fight is won not through physical prowess or better armor or menacing weapons, but through the most foolish means possible. A teenager with a slingshot. The result of that battle is that the enemy's representative, his champion, has his head crushed and the enemies of God are scattered. Now, when you think about that, that ought to sound familiar to you. Right? Jesus, a son of Judah and a son of David, looks weak. Jesus refuses armor, both in the form of Peter's sword, when Peter comes and cuts off the guy's ear, and also in the form of the heavenly host he could have called down to help him on the cross. Jesus takes up a cross instead of a sword. He defeats the serpent through foolish means, the most foolish means. How is it that you can win a fight by dying? But that's exactly what Jesus does. And through his death and resurrection, he crushes Satan, scatters his enemies, rules and reigns not just over Israel, but over the entire universe, and fulfills God's promises to Abraham. This story is supposed to point us forward to the story. The story of Jesus defeating death. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. That the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And what is the foolishness of God? It is that He sent His only Son to die on a cross, descend to the place of the dead, and rise victoriously three days later. And that's how you're saved. That doesn't even make sense. I mean, with with Peter and James and John, we're going, Jesus, why don't you call the armies of the Lord to come and back you up and defeat Rome? And instead he says, nope, I'm going to go die. And that's how I'm going to win. That is the most foolish means that we can think of, and yet it is the wisdom of God that through his own son, he crushes the serpent's head through his death and resurrection. Now, how does that help us today? It's important that we're, when we talk about fighting our own battles, right? so we've talked about all these, these four aspects of the text. We've talked about the context of the battle, the circumstances of the battle, the characters, the quality. We just talked about the Christ-centered, fifthly character of the battle. And the sixth thing I want to point out is the Christian in our battles. How do we apply this text to us? I hope what you see out of drawing these connections between this text and Jesus is that ultimately to face the giants is to look at Jesus who has defeated the giant of death, Satan, and hell. When we talk about facing our giants, we're not first and foremost talking about, you know, man, I've got to face this football team this weekend. We're not first and foremost even talking about difficult tasks at work. The giant that is faced 
in the Bible is one that raises his head in a covenantally significant battle and who's defeated by the Davidic king and the new Adam. And there's only one person who does that, and it's Jesus. You and I aren't fighting that covenantally significant final battle for our souls. Jesus has already done that. Jesus has already faced the main giant that you need to be worried about. And he's killed him dead through his death and resurrection. I think it's really important that we we meditate on that for just a minute. That the most important battle that you will face has already been fought and won in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that we don't fight spiritual warfare today, right? I mean... Paul tells us to stand firm, to put on the armor of God. He tells us that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities of this world. We're still called to fight spiritual battles. But I want you to hear that your enemy is already defeated and chained. It is not that you shouldn't fight, but it is the case that your fighting is faith in the one who's already won the battle for you. To fight, to to engage in spiritual warfare is to have confidence in the one who's already won for you. And so the question that we have today, and I'm not going to preach till 1 o'clock, the question before us as we read this passage is, and it's, it's the same thing that Israel had a choice of, here in this text. Do you turn to fear or faith when trouble comes? Do you turn to fear or faith when trouble comes? For those who turn to fear, the response is, where's my armor? This is what Saul does. Where's my armor? Whose armor can I put on to help me in this battle? And for us, the armor is not, you know, a bronze helmet and armor that comes from our neck down to our knees. Armor for us is our own strength, our own strategies, our own self. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's the the fear response. What can I do to win this battle? But the faith response is not where's my armor, but where is my Savior? This is not some fake faith, but faith in the reality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It doesn't mean that you just sit there Like lying on your couch going, okay, Jesus, the battle's already won. I'm not going to do anything. That's not the point. The point is you are on your knees praying to the Lord to help you by the Spirit in the battle that confronts you because you know that on your own, in your own power, in your own flesh, you can't fight it. But Jesus not only has already fought it for you, He's already won it for you. And so relying on Him means that you win as well. So I want to encourage you today. When you talk about facing your giants, yes, you are going to face battles. Yes, you are going to face opposition. Yes, you are going to face attack. And the temptation is to try to think our way out of that or fight our way out of that. Instead, what I want you to think about and what I want you to ask the Spirit for help in doing is to put your faith in Jesus. Again and again and again and again, because He's already won the battle for you. So the invitation today is very simple. 
For those of you who already know Jesus, I want to invite you again to put your faith in him to fight the battles that are before you. I don't know what y'all are facing. I haven't been here in 12 years. I have no idea what's going on in your lives. But Jesus does. And he's already fought and won the battle for you. For those of you who don't know Jesus today, your enemy is my enemy. And your enemy is the enemy, the serpent. He's seeking to kill and destroy through you hanging on to your own sin. And so today the invitation for those of you who don't know Jesus is if you feel like you can't be delivered from that bondage, you can through faith in Jesus Christ. You can be delivered through the one who has defeated Satan, death, sin, and the grave in his death and resurrection. So the invitation for you today is to put your faith in him, the, the only one who can save you. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for the way that it continues to form and shape my own life and my family's life. Uh, I pray, Lord, for the saints in the room that you would build them up and encourage them and continue to, to point them towards yourself. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of the battle, they would respond with faith rather than fear. And even when they respond with fear, that you would call them again to faith by the power of your spirit. Uh, Lord, and I pray for those who don't know you who are here today. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to see that you and you alone through the death and resurrection of your son, can save them from our enemy. And that you've done what's necessary to do that. Help them to put their faith in you today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.